Hi everybody, I'm John Sherwood and this is my podcast where I seek to fuel faith in Jesus in the 21st century. I'm a minister of the gospel and believe in making disciples who make disciples because Jesus really is beautiful and amazing and worth following with everything that we have. You can check out more resources at my website, johnsherwood.com, where I write about the intersection of faith and modern culture, as well as Bible study, leadership, and faith interviews, all designed to help ignite and fuel faith in Jesus Christ. And with all that, let's dive into the episode. series this summer called the Summer of Wisdom, and we've been reading through the book of Job this month, so I hope you've been enjoying that and keeping up with it. Uh, Let's continue to try to push through and read the book of Job together as a church family this month. What we're going to do is last week we kind of introduced the book of Job. Today we're going to continue on and to continue our discussion and understanding, interpretation, and application of the book of Job. How can we gain wisdom from it for our modern age? Let's start out with this video. There are three books in the Bible known as the wisdom literature, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. The first, Proverbs, showed us that God is wise and just. Yeah, we learned that God has ordered the world so that it's fair. The righteous are rewarded, the wicked are punished. In other words, you get what you deserve. But then we meet Ecclesiastes who observes, uh, people don't always get what they deserve. Uh, Yeah, he said the world isn't always fair, that life is unpredictable and hard to comprehend, just like smoke. And this makes you wonder, okay, well, is God wise and just? Exactly. And so it's that question that is being explored in the final book of wisdom, Job. All right, let's dive in. So Job begins with a strange story that takes place up in the heavens, which are described something like a heavenly command center. So God is there with these angelic creatures called the sons of God, and they're all there reporting for duty. And God points out this guy Job, his servant, showing how righteous and good he is. And then one of these angelic creatures approaches. He's referred to in Hebrew as the Satan. The Satan. Who's this? Well, this word is actually a title, which literally means the one who is opposed. So out of this whole crew, he is the one questioning how God is running the world. And he proposes that Job might not actually love God, that he's only a good person because God rewards him. If God were to take away all of the good things he gave to Job, then we would see his true colors. So he thinks Job is just working the system? That's exactly right. Maybe he's obeying just to get what he wants. So God agrees to this experiment and allows the Satan to inflict suffering on Job. And Job loses everyone and everything that he cares about. It is devastating. And remember, he deserves none of this. God himself said so. The remarkable thing is that in the midst of all this suffering, Job still praises God. At least for chapters one and two. But then in chapter 3, we find out how he's really feeling inside. He unleashes this poem that reveals his devastation. It's a long, elaborate curse on the day that he was born. 
After this, some of Job's friends come to visit him to offer their help. And all of them are like, Job, you must have done something horribly wrong to deserve this. After all, we know God is just, and we know the world is ordered by God's justice and fairness, so you must be getting what you deserve. And for the next 34 chapters, the friends and Job go back and forth in very dense Hebrew poetry. His friends keep speculating about why God might have sent such suffering, and they even start making up lists of hypothetical sins that Job must have committed. But after each accusation, Job defends his innocence. And Job is innocent. He is. He's also on an emotional roller coaster. At some moments, he's very confident that God is still wise and just. Yeah, in other moments, he's doubting God's goodness. He even comes to accuse God of being reckless, unfair, and corrupt. So by the end of the dialogue, Job demands that God come and explain himself in person. And God does so. He comes in the form of a great storm cloud. Now, God doesn't give Job a direct answer. He doesn't tell Job about the conversation with the Satan. Yeah, he does something very different. He takes Job on a virtual tour of the universe. He shows Job how grand the world is, and he asks him if he's even capable of running it or understanding it just for a day. He shows Job how much detail there is in the world, things that we might see every day but really don't understand at all. But God does. He knows it all intimately. He pays attention to the beauty and operations of the universe in ways that we haven't even imagined and in places that we will never see. Then to conclude, God shows Job two wondrous beasts and brags about how great they are. Yeah, they are dangerous. I mean, they would kill you without even thinking about it. And God says they're not evil. They're actually a part of his good world. And then that's it. That's God's whole defense. It's kind of weird. I mean, what was this all about? It seems to be this. From Job's point of view, it looks like God is not just. But God's perspective is infinitely bigger. He's dynamically interacting with a whole universe of complexity when he makes decisions. And this is what God calls his wisdom. So Job asking God to defend himself is actually kind of absurd. He couldn't comprehend this kind of complexity even if he wanted to. So where does this leave us? Well, it leaves Job in a place of humility. He never learned why he suffered, and yet he's able to live in peace and in the fear of the Lord. But that's not where the book ends, because after this, God restores to Job double everything he had lost. And this, again, is surprising. I mean, is this a reward? Is God saying, congratulations, Job, you passed this elaborate test? No. I mean, the whole book just made the point that Job losing everything was not a punishment, and so not getting it back isn't a reward. So why does he get it back? Well, apparently, God, in his wisdom, decided to give Job a gift. We don't know why. But what we do know is that Job is now the kind of person who, no matter what comes, good or bad, he can trust God's wisdom. And that's the book of Job and the end of our wisdom series. These biblical books of wisdom are amazing. Each one offers a unique perspective on the good life, and you need to hear all of them together as you learn to live with wisdom and in the fear of the Lord. So last week we started this book of Job, and we took 
a look at chapter one, and we really started seeing kind of the stage that was being set for this story, right? And we started talking a lot about the original audience, the Mesopotamian ancient Near Eastern peoples and their world and what they would have understood and heard as they heard these stories that were later edited and collected that we now have as the book of Job. And so after reading chapter one, we see that the author is setting the stage for this big battle, this giant chess game between what I've been calling man's wisdom and what later is called God's wisdom. And so we're talking about how do we understand these wisdom books, this wisdom literature that's ancient, thousands of years old, and what relevance does it have for our life? What wisdom can it offer us in the 21st century? So let's double back a little bit and recap some of what we talked about yesterday. So in the ancient Near East, the belief was that the gods needed to be appeased. You know, they were sort of whimsical and capricious. They sort of did what they wanted, and you needed to make sure they were happy, and you never quite knew how to do that. And so that put you on edge. You were anxious. Am I going to get smitten, smoted by a lightning bolt today? You know, like, how can I make sure that things go well, that drought doesn't come, my family gets sick? Well, we need to do offerings and ritual sacrifices, and we need to find ways to make these gods happy because, you know, they're sort of capricious. So this character shows up on the scene in the very beginning of Job in chapter 1, the Satan. You heard these guys talk about him a little bit. Um, he's not necessarily the Satan as in a personal individual that later is referred to in the Bible, like in Revelation and stuff. He's just this accuser. He's not even necessarily depicted as evil in this story. He's just bringing a charge. He's just setting the stage for this courtroom case for these two ideas to come into battle and clash together. So this Satan character shows up and he offers this charge that this same type of God that is in this story is the God that all the other ancient Near Eastern people knew. And that Job would curse God if only God would remove all these blessings from him. So this is the challenge. This is what the case is revolving around. Do people, do humans love God? Do they live righteously? Do they do uh, pious acts? just because they want to get rewarded for them. This is the main battle. This is the chess match that Job is going to unpack, the book of Job. So everything is allowed to be stripped from Job, obviously in this most horrific and devastating fashion. This is the part of Job we're most familiar with. All of his children die in a day, all of his livestock, all of his riches, all of his material wealth. He's left with just himself. And then his wife is like, why are you hanging on to your righteousness? Just curse God and die. You know, it's like, well, God, why didn't you take her? This is making it even more difficult. Okay. And so he has his health left. So at least he's physically able. And then that's taken too. And so basically he has nothing but his very life, his very existence, nothing else. This is devastating. I mean, for us to even imagine this as our realities, put yourself in his shoes. And at least for chapters one and two, Job doesn't blame God. He doesn't say anything against God. He sort of takes it on the chin like a man. And we're like, wow, that's amazing. And then the story keeps unfolding and we see that Job is actually a real human being and he starts saying all the things to God that we would likely say, you know, you big bully, why are you doing this? So last week we also talked about how this Near Eastern ancient view of the gods uh, was this idea of this great symbiosis, right? And this retribution principle that it was, a, it was a primitive, uneducated view of God that none of us in the modern world would ever have. We don't ever think of God in those kinds of ways, right? We could never be so naive to think about God 
as though we aren't doing things right and God isn't happy with us and that's why things are going bad. We would never think that way about God, right? That's an ancient, naive, sort of silly idea of God. Or that we haven't had good enough quiet times or read our Bibles enough or done enough Christian acts or shared our faith as much as we should or our purity is not as good as we think it should be and, and therefore we're anxious about where do we really stand with God and how does he really feel about us? These are ancient views of God. It's not things that we deal with in the modern world, right? Nobody ever thinks of God in those ways. So, we're going to try to figure out how can we think about God. I'm being sarcastic in case you don't know me very well. And so the best wisdom of Job's day, what I'm calling man's wisdom, is presented by Job's friends in chapters 4 to 25, and then later his fourth friend shows up on the scene, Elihu. And so Job's friends, and again last week I mentioned the best things that Job, Job's friends ever did was in the first seven days, in which they were just silent with Job and sat with him. Um, and then they opened their mouths and it got worse and worse from there. So they present all of man's wisdom, right? They present all of the reasons, the justifications of why is this happening? So think about this. You're in Job's position. Everything's been stripped from you. Your life is utterly devastated, probably the likes of which none of us have ever seen and hope never will. And then your friends show up and say, it must be because you did something wrong. How would you feel about your friends right then? How would that make you feel? That would not make you feel better. You'd be like, what kind of friend are you? And we know from the very beginning of the story that Job is in fact innocent. God says so. So we know that the character Job in the story is actually innocent. So we know all along as we listen to his friends that they're wrong. Their assessment is incorrect. But we think like that all the time, don't we? We think in terms of this retribution principle that you get what you deserve. If things are going bad for me, it must be because somebody messed up. I messed up or somebody else messed up. We, we think about God in this great symbiosis mentality that, you know, I need to do stuff for him and that he's going to do stuff for us and we're in this kind of dichotomy, this symbiotic relationship where we need each other. And Job is obliterating those ideas of God and presenting a very new way to understand and view who God is. And so the best wisdom is presented by his friends, and this wisdom is what represented all of the Near Eastern cultural understandings of the gods. And this presentation of the retribution principle where people get what they, get what they deserve, we spoke about this last week, it's renounced by Job. Job, in the story, hangs on to his innocence. He will not give in, like, yeah, maybe I did do something wrong, you know? Like, he just clings on to his innocence. And then finally, he wants to talk to God directly. And then he gets what he asked for. And of course, in chapters 38 through 41, we have this dialogue, and all of this is poetic. All of this is written in Hebrew poetry. And chapters 38 to 41, God shows up and talks to Job in this poetic form. And he says that, if you're reading in, the, in a newer version like the NIV, he says he should brace himself like a man, for I shall speak to you and ask you questions. In the older versions, it says, like in the KJV or the NASB, it says, gird up your loins, for I shall speak to you. I just love that. Like, when do we talk like that anymore? You know, you're going to work Monday morning, gird up your loins, honey. You know? There's just something, I don't know, something resonates with me. Gird up your loins, like, get ready. Get ready. This is how God addresses Job. Job says, I demand your audience. 
You are either a bully, unfair and unjust, or even worse, you're just not around and things are truly chaotic and you're not orderly and you're not sovereignly ruling the world. And I want you to answer me. Why is this happening? And God says, gird up your loins. I don't know about you, but if a storm cloud came over me and told me to brace myself, I might get real scared real quick. So God seeks to humble Job by showing the ridiculousness of the wisdom of man, of the arguments thus far by his friends, that the way the world operates, it's not through some great symbiosis that you have to appease the gods in order for them to not smite you making you constantly anxious, not knowing where you stand. And you'll notice as you read Job that he never tries to resort to some sort of appeasement of God or try to perform some sort of ritual or religious observance to try to make him happy after he's afflicted. Job doesn't do that. This is a very distinctive Israelite way of thinking about God. Job never says, oh man, all this terrible stuff needs to happen. I better go find a goat to kill and offer it up to this God that is making my life terrible. He never does that because he's not operating from this great symbiosis mindset that bad things are happening, therefore I must have done something wrong, therefore I need to do something to make this God happy. He never thinks like that. That never happens. And Job is declared innocent right from the start. So we know from the beginning as readers, or as these people were hearers originally, they would have known. It's not Job's not getting what he deserves. He doesn't deserve this. This would have created great tension and conflict for the original hearers. Wait, what? This didn't happen because Job deserves it? In the first few verses, we're like, already our minds are spinning. And where does our, where does our mind go? Then why did it happen? Where does your mind go when bad things happen in your life? Why did this happen? This is a natural question that we struggle with, and this is what the story of Job is all about. So instead, what Job is offering, the book of Job and this wisdom literature of this ancient Hebrew text, instead what Job is showing us is that at the heart of how the world operates is something different than man's wisdom, the retribution principle or the great symbiosis. It's something that Job, the book of Job in the Bible calls God's wisdom. That God's wisdom is at the heart of how things work. And then what's your next question? So what is God's wisdom? And so to display and to explain what God's wisdom is, God takes Job on this virtual tour, right? He starts giving him these snapshots and in poetry talking about things like, you know, birthing patterns of animals and weather patterns and these great beasts and all of this stuff. Talking about the cosmos and how stars were born. And, and then he asked Job, do you know any of this stuff? Were you there when that happened? Do you oversee any of this? And how does Job respond? I opened my mouth once and I see now I was a fool. I will not open it again. <laughs> so my wife and I, you know, we're newer-ish to the Asheville area, this beautiful place. We've been here a year and a half. We finally got passes to the Biltmore, okay? That's kind of like a famous thing, right? Like, all you, you know, all Ashevillians go to the Biltmore, right? Oh, no, that's just for the tourists visiting. Okay, got you. So we go to the Biltmore, right? And we're walking around with our little ones, and we're enjoying the scenery. And this, this thunderstorm, like, rolls in, like, quickly. I mean, it's beautiful, sunny, warm. And then, like, all of a sudden you see the, the darkness, you know? And you're like, 
that wasn't there a few minutes ago, you know? And you're like, that looks like it's going to be here really soon. And you kind of see that, like, wall of rain, you know, off in the distance. And you're like, hmm, we need to get back to our vehicle. And then all of a sudden, we're just kind of walking. And out of nowhere, this lightning bolt strikes. And it was close. I haven't been that close to a, a bolt in a long time. I grew up in Florida, and this stuff happens all the time. I mean, I've had my house shake from lightning and thunder being so close. I haven't done that in a while because I haven't lived in Florida in a while. And this bolt struck, I swear, it felt like it was where that wall is. I mean, clearly it was further away than that. But this bolt just lit up the sky and cracked. And what did I do? I curled up in the fetal position. Like, my natural instinct was just to do this. Like, what am I guarding myself from exactly? Like, this is going to help me, you know, like... Err, God, you know, like, take that lightning bolt, uh, you know, but like, it just the, the power and the raw, like, just authority of this thing just like humbled me physically. I just, like, ah, you know, like, luckily I didn't let out a girl a scream, and so I could save my dignity up here this morning. But, and then, you know, and then I've got my three year old, my one year old, and they're just kind of like, oh, what was that? You know, like, like, don't you realize we're about to die? You know, I'm thinking to myself, oh, the innocence of kids, you know, but. This thunderbolt, like, shook me up. I was like, wow. And then what happens as God's talking to Job in chapter 38 and verse 24? He says, what is the way to the place where lightning is dispersed? And I started doing a little research on lightning last night. You know what we know about lightning? Not much. <laughs> we know it's electricity. We know there's some pathways. But how it happens, we literally have no clue. One article was like, maybe it really is Zeus. Like, we don't know much about lightning. And yet that's something that in parts of the world you see almost every single day. And we don't know how exactly it happens. And there are all these things that we're discovering that seem to be very counter to how we understand current physics. Like, it just defies what we currently understand. Thousands of years ago, Job was like, yeah, I don't know where they come from either. <laughs> and here we are in our modern age, so, so educated and so wise and understanding can explain how things happen, really. Get next to a lightning bolt and see what happens. You end up on the ground fetal. Like, ah! <laughs> and God's like, I oversee that. I, through my wisdom, have created that. And what's he doing to Job and to us? He's trying to humble us, to help us realize that we are not him. You know, my mom, she's an avid horse person. Any horse people in the room? So, like, you're either a horse person or you're not. And horse people are really horse people. I mean, like, if you're a horse person, you know, you just have an amazingly weird relationship with horses. Like, they're almost human-like, you know, and... Some people, I don't get it, it's not me, I'm not a horse person, but horse people are like horse people. Like, dogs are not man's best friend to horse people. Like, horses are like, you know, might be better than a human. And for me, the main reason I'm not a horse person is because those things are dangerous. You ever been on one of those things? You know, you're sitting up on a 16-hand horse or something, and you're like, um, I do not have control of this thing. If this thing wants to do something, I have nothing I can do about it. I'm going to put a little piece of metal in its mouth and hope that it listens. I'm going to put some metal on the end of my boots and hope that it listens. 
But if this thing, which has a mind of its own, decides to go like this, I'm falling off of this thing. If this thing decides to take off in a lickety split in a speed that I can't even compare to, I'm hanging on for dear life, just hoping not to die. Horses are amazingly strong, dangerous animals. I don't, that's why I'm like, I don't get it, horse people. Okay, fine. You know, and all horse people have tragic stories about being fall, you know, bucked and concussions. I'm like, why do you love me? Like, what? Okay. In battle, sure, maybe. I can see the advantage. But just for fun as a pet, I don't get it. But let's turn over to Job chapter 39. Because guess what? Horses apparently haven't changed that much over the last several thousand years. In Job chapter 39, we read in verse 19. This is, again, in the poetic discourse of God with Job, where Job says, explain yourself to God, and this is God's response. <laughs> chapter 39, verse 19. Do you give the horse its strength or clothe its neck with a flowing mane? Do you make it leap like a locust? striking terror with its proud snorting. It paws fiercely, rejoicing in its strength and charges into the fray. It laughs at fear, afraid of nothing. It does not shy away from the sword. The quiver rattles against its side along with the flashing spear and lance. In frenzied excitement, it eats up the ground. It cannot stand still when the trumpet sounds. At the blast of the trumpet, it snorts, aha! It catches the scent of battle from afar, the shout of commanders and the battle cry. Does the hawk take flight by your wisdom and spread out its wings toward the south? And then he goes in and starts talking about birds. Horses are amazing beasts. And God is saying, Job, can you even control one of those things? When the trumpet sounds for battle, what is that thing going to do? It's going to go kill some people. It's going to run toward the fight. It's going to take its rider into the battle and not be afraid of anything. And what's the implication behind what God is saying here? I control that. I made that. Do you see how small you are, Job? Do you see how fragile you are? Do you see how much is going on here that you don't really comprehend? And sometimes, you know, it goes on and it talks about these other grand creatures, the Leviathan and Behemoth that you see in other places of the Bible and would have been very familiar uh, ideas and concepts to the ancient Near Eastern Mesopotamian people. And sometimes, you know, for us as modern people, we get stuck on the Behemoth and Leviathan in chapter 40 and 41, thinking maybe it was a hippo or a crocodile or, or maybe it's some now extinct dinosaur or something like this. But these views are a little bit problematic in some ways, and it's much more likely that these dis descriptions, these creatures were representing commonly known mythological creatures at that time and in that era. And so all these, although these creatures, the, the behemoth and Leviathan, even though they're familiar with Job's audience, the author is saying that these creatures, which would have been known as chaos creatures, meaning that these mythological creatures were known to be sort of a little outside of created order. They were sort of outside of the purview of the gods, and they were chaotic. They weren't controlled by the gods, and so they were dangerous. And so the author here in Job, he's saying that even these chaos creatures are not on the fringe of the ordered world where chaos reigns, but instead they're a part of God's ordered creation that even God created these, that even God orders these amazingly fantastic creatures and beasts. And God is saying that even though they're dangerous, 
They've been designed by him. And that sounds kind of intuitive to us in modern days. We're like, oh yeah, God created everything. You know, like we're sort of indoctrinated and ingrained with that way of thinking. Yeah, everything that is is made by God. But to the original audience, this would have been remarkable. That even the things on the fringe, even God oversees that. Job chapter 41, verse 33 and 34, says nothing, referring to the Leviathan, on earth is its equal, a creature without fear. It looks down on all that are haughty. It is king over all that are proud. And so the author is calling our attention to how humbled we get in the face of God's created and ordered world, like a horse or a lightning bolt. You can think about things in nature that humble us. That's the author's point. He's trying to help us to see the fact that these mythological creatures, even though they're viewed as powerful and mighty and beyond the ability for humans to subdue and control and domesticate, he said, surely we can't expect to control the God who made them. And what is it that is implied in Job's questioning of God? Explain yourself. I want to control you. I want to domesticate you, God. I want to be your equal. I want to be a, a bit in your mouth like a horse so I can make you go where I want. And God says, I'm not able to be controlled. I'm not domesticatable. And so perhaps a modern version of this virtual tour might be, you ready? We're, now we're going to jump into the 21st century. We're going to say, God, why is this suffering happening to me? Why is my life turning out the way it is? Why did this happen? Why did that happen? Why did this not happen? Why is life sucky? Anybody ever feel like that? No, it's just me? Okay. So you're asking God to explain himself, and then he takes us on a virtual tour, and he says, he's taking us through the cosmos, and he's taking us in a tour of black holes, and he puts us on the event horizon so we can see it, and he starts explaining quasars to us and bosons, and, and then he starts taking us to the multiverse, and, and he asks us, do you know how all this works? And I don't know if half of you even know some of those words I just used, but let me tell you the answer. We don't know how it works. We're trying to come up with theory upon theory upon another theory just to explain the stuff that we can see. It's like when Paul says in Romans 1, several thousand years later after Job, or at least a thousand years after Job, he says, what may be known about God is plain to people because God has made it plain. For since the creation of the world, the invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what he has made, so that people are without excuse. So what does Paul tell the Roman Christians right after Jesus' lifetime? He says, you know what? All people everywhere are able to understand something about God. In fact, he says, what may be known about God in other words, all the things that we can know about God can be learned through just looking at what he's created. That dang, he's powerful. And he's got this divine nature. And so this takes us to this pivotal chapter in Job chapter 28. Read with me in chapter 28. Oftentimes this chapter is titled or subtitled an interlude. These are all things that have been added later, obviously, after the original text. And Job starts poetically speaking about the elusiveness of this wisdom. So all three of his friends have presented the wisdom of man. They've said their piece. 
which ultimately boiled down to, I don't know, dude, but you must have done something wrong. And Job is clinging on to his innocence, like, no, guys, that's not it. Thanks, but no thanks. You can go home now. And then he starts into this poem in chapter 28, struggling to know exactly how things work and why things happen the way they do in life. He says in verse 1, There's a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth and copper is smelted from ore. Mortals put an end to the darkness. They search out the farthest recesses for ore in the blackest darkness. Far from human dwellings, they cut a shaft in places untouched by human feet. Far from other people, they dangle and sway. The earth from which food comes is transformed below as by fire. Lapis lazuli, which is often thought of as sapphire, comes from its rocks and its dust contains nuggets of gold. No bird of prey knows that hidden path. No falcon's eye has seen it. Proud beasts do not set foot on it, and no lion prowls there. People assault the flinty rock with their hands and lay bare the roots of the mountains. They tunnel through the rock. Their eyes see all of its treasure. They search the sources of the rivers and bring hidden things to light. What's he talking about? He's talking about the dwarves, right? You know, mining for all of them. He's talking about mining how men, right? Even in ancient Mesopotamia, which was actually the center hub of the world at that time for all metallurgy, all making of metals, this would have been very familiar to his audience. He's saying, even though we go to this great length to find these metals, to be able to make things and observe them and their beauty, and we go to places that nothing else even has ever been. And he says... But where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? No mortal comprehends its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. The deep says, it's not in me. The sea says, it's not with me. It cannot be bought with the finest gold, nor can its price be weighed out in silver. It cannot be bought with the gold of Ophir, with precious onyx or lapis lazuli. Neither gold nor crystal can compare with it, nor can it be had for jewels of gold. Coral and jasper are not worthy to mention the price of wisdom is beyond rubies. The topaz of Cush cannot compare with it. It cannot be bought with pure gold. Where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds in the sky. Destruction and death say, only a rumor of it has reached our ears. God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where it dwells. For he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he established the force of the wind and measured out the waters and he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, then he looked up at wisdom and appraised it. He confirmed it and tested it. And he said to the human race, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. This is a pivotal chapter. Many believe the hinge of the entire book where we see this clash that's brought up in chapter 1, the court case, the accusation, the accuser, the Satan. He says, people really only do right by you, God, because of their blessing. And they're struggling with this man who's suffering, and why do people suffer? And explain yourself, God. And he's trying to hold on to his righteousness. And here in the middle, before we get to God's reply, Job is struggling. After all the wisdom of the world, all of man's wisdom has been spent, he says, only God knows. 
And this is what God says is wisdom, to fear the Lord and to shun evil. I remember when we talked in Ecclesiastes last month, one of the other wisdom literature books in the Old Testament, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 1.13, as he applied his mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens, what a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. Even Solomon, the richest, wisest man that the Bible talks about ever lived the earth, he says, it's a heavy burden trying to figure out life, trying to seek out wisdom. How does all this work? Man, that's a tough task. Have you ever gone to task trying to figure out life and then come up short feeling frustrated like, man, I didn't get anywhere. I got more questions now than when I started. Guess what? It's nothing new. People throughout all of the ages have been struggling with this. In Job chapter 42, let's look at Job's final response after God tells him to gird up his loins and speaks to him. Job 42, verse 1 then Job replied to the Lord. This is Job's response after God takes him through this virtual tour and asks him, do you know how any of this works? This is Job's response. I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is it that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak and I will question you and you shall answer me in my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. What's Job doing? He's humbling out. I believe that Job's response here to God is what challenges us to have the same kind of wisdom in our modern world, where perhaps it's even more difficult than ever to have this type of wisdom. Why? Oh, because we have science to explain everything. We're looking for the theory of everything. Do you guys, are you familiar with theory of everything? Theory of everything is man's pursuit to have a harmonious theory that combines and works together with all theories that basically will explain how all of life works. We're still searching for that, by the way. And as we're searching for this, we think, we know how certain things work. Mostly, right? We know that electrons and charged particles that are negative and positive create a pathway from the ground to the sky, and then a lightning bolt travels through that pathway, but then there's this weird thing on the ground of negatively charged particles. We can't explain how that got there, but it's there when a lightning bolt strikes. And so we understand pieces of it, right? So who needs, who needs this archaic view of God and, and Zeus throwing thunderbolts from the sky? Oh, come on, that's child's play. We're smarter and more educated and more well-advanced. And we don't need those kinds of explanations, the God of the gaps sort of thinking. If we can just explain everything ourselves, then we have no need for this childish fetish for God. And today, I think, for maybe more than ever, we have no reason to be humble. Because we're God. We can explain all things, right? Man, we can't even make a romantic relationship go right. I mean, come on, seriously. Another person, like if we're so high and mighty and we can understand all things, we can't even get love right. 
Can I, can I get an amen on that? Amen. Oh, you guys all have amazing relationships. I'm sorry. Okay, me and my wife will go home and shame today. All right, we're still trying to figure it out, by the way. And so here we are this morning, right? We're facing the same ancient battle, the same ancient wisdom that Job and his audience struggled with. It's the same thing. For thousands of years, nothing's new under the sun. But we have to ask the question, will we, in the modern age, in the 21st century, where we have the scientific revolution and can explain so many more things, will we be humbled before God and admit that there are many things far too wonderful for us? And will we trust God even when things are hard or downright devastating like Job. This is the message of Job that is so hard for us. God doesn't give us the answer that we're looking for. He just simply says, you don't understand. Trust me. And what does that strike in us? Pride. I don't want to trust you. I want to trust me. Help me understand so then I don't have to trust you. And God's whole point then and now is to invite us into a trusting relationship, trusting that he's greater than us. He's infinitely more wise than us. And even when things are bad, he's still worthy of our trust. And so the question for us as we try to apply wisdom for our modern age is, is it possible for us to love God, to live righteously because he's inherently worthy? Or do we simply come to church and try to live good lives because we really want something else? We want a life to work out the way that we want, and we think this is the direction that will get there for us. I want to invite you to think about these things. Consider this, this basic question that's being wrestled in the book of Job, and that undoubtedly everybody in here has wrestled with at some point in their life. I want you to think about this this week. And next Sunday when we come together, we're going to be in our roundtable discussion groups. And we're going to discuss this together. And we're going to wrestle with the problem of pain and suffering and how we view God through that pain and suffering. Let's close out in prayer together. Wow, God, it's a tall order for us to trust you, especially in pain and in confusion and uncertainty and doubt and Things that we just can't explain. I mean, we don't even know why yawning happens. I don't understand why we think we can explain everything, but that's another sermon, I suppose, Father. But God, as we wrestle and struggle, show us, God, how inherently worthy you are. That you're not just worthy of our praise and pious acts when things are going well for us, but that you're worthy regardless because you're a creative God who, whose wisdom far exceeds our own. Even if we wanted to, we couldn't understand your mind. And Father, I pray that even as we do gain more knowledge of how things work and as we observe things and create alongside of you and invent and understand more and more of the nuances of how things work, Father, help us to always stay humble to know that any revelation that we receive, any knowledge of truth of how things work is being given to us by you. That you were there in the beginning. You know how it all works. And you're allowing us to join you in your knowledge. Help us to not become filled with pride in that. And Father, I pray that as this wisdom text from long ago 
as it is read and listened to and engaged by us, that you can help us to have wisdom for our lives. Even though our context is so different in many ways from theirs, it's still similar in so many ways too. We're still wrestling with the same things. We're still struggling to know why do we suffer? Why do bad things happen to good people? And God, sometimes we, we don't really like your answer of just trust me. We want more than that. And God, help us to be humble. Help us to take on that attitude that Job had finally there at the end of I repent in dust and ashes. I'm sorry for questioning you. That it's not my place. And God, I know that there's a part of us that doesn't like that. There's a part of me that doesn't like that. Help us through those times. Help us to know that you're not scared of our doubt. You're not scared of our accusations. Us calling you a bully, it doesn't frighten you. You invite us to journey through those things with you. And Jesus, thank you that you have journeyed in our shoes. That though you were God, you did not consider it something to be grasped. But instead, you came and you humbled yourself and lived this life and showed us what it looks like to live a life for God because he is truly and inherently worthy. Praise in your name. Thank you for listening to this Faith Fuel podcast. We look forward to seeing you next time.